You can be completely consumed by bone-crushing nausea. Um, and that's what it's like for women with hyperemesis. The nausea is so all-consuming um, that you can't focus on anything else because it, it just, it's like in every cell of your body, like you're being poisoned. Some degree of nausea and vomiting is normal in pregnancy, but for other women, it can become a problem and even become severe and require hospital treatment. A new clinical update on bmj.com discusses the management of severe pregnancy sickness and hyperemesis gravidarum. I'm Helen MacDonald, Head of Education at the BMJ, and I'm joined by three of the authors of the article to talk about it. Hi, I'm Caitlin Dean. I'm a nurse specialist in hyperemesis gravidarum. Um, I also am the chairperson for Pregnancy Sickness Support, uh, which is a UK charity for the condition. Um, and I'm currently doing my PhD at the Academic Medical Centre um, in Amsterdam. Uh, I suffered with it myself, and that's why uh, my career has gone down this path. Dr. Jelena Ostrowski, full-time GP, also a sufferer uh, with hyperemesis in three pregnancies, and. Uh, became a trustee for Pregnancy Sickness Support Charity. Hi, I'm Rebecca Painter. I'm an associate professor and a consultant obstetrician at the University Medical Centres in Amsterdam. And I have a special interest in maternal nutrition, uh, ranging from obesity to diabetes and, of course, um, hyperemesis gravidarum. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. And it's such a privilege to have a wealth of different perspectives um, on this really important issue for, for women uh, in pregnancy. And I wonder if I can start with, with you two with experience of what this feels like as a person, um, just to give us some insights, looking back at the time when you were unwell with hyperemesis, what it felt like and what those interactions were like with healthcare. Yeah, so I mean... I think it's really important to realise that most women actually a little bit look forward to pregnancy sickness, if assuming it's a planned pregnancy. Um, I certainly did. I was newly married and we were looking forward to starting a family. And so, and following a miscarriage, I was really a bit excited about having morning sickness. Um, and we laughed about it the first morning that I was sick. And within 48 hours, I just had not stopped throwing up. And it was like, hang on a minute, this cannot possibly be normal. Um, and but you put up with quite a lot because you sort of told it's a normal bit you expect it um it's anticipated and um but really for me the horror came when i started going to ask for help and was just met with barriers and being told that it's normal that um i shouldn't be taking any medication um that you know i just needed to pull myself together um and get on with it and so on and when you're so unwell being sick you know anywhere from 20 to 30 times a day, almost continuously, um, and retching in between those vomiting and the nausea is constant. And the nausea is something that a lot of people don't really understand. It's very much on a, on a scale like pain. You can have a little bit of feeling a little bit sick or you can be completely consumed by bone-crushing nausea. Um, and that's what it's like for women with hyperemesis. The nausea is so all-consuming um, that you can't focus on anything else because it, it just, it's like in every cell of your body, like you're being poisoned. So to to be in that position and to be asking for help and being met with being told that you're not sick enough um, to warrant it or that you're selfish to want to take medication and that you should think about your baby, um, 
that that's where where the the battle really mm. then lies mm. um and you're faced not just with battling the condition itself which in itself is like a really hard battle to get through you've got months and months of it um but to be told by everyone around you not just healthcare professionals everyone else as well that you know you're lucky to be able to get pregnant and it's for a good reason and you know you should be excited about it when you just feel like you're dying um that that's really hard really hard so the the emotional impact of the condition can be quite yeah yeah i mean it's it's miserable to be off work for um a few days being sick but when the the weeks start clocking up and you're off work for for weeks and weeks and you're just lying in bed literally with vomit sometimes just dribbling out of your mouth and your whole body consumed with nausea and you can't have the lights on or the window open because every sensation triggers more vomiting and your husband's out at work um and your friends are all busy with work the isolation is really profound and uh, and and I didn't even have it that bad. <laughs> I know women who have it worse than me. Um, so it's you often know, at that time of pregnancy when when women may not have told other people around them. Yeah. As well, I guess that their pregnancy you may feel that more can alone. Add to the isolation. Yeah. If your friends don't realise that you're lying at home sick on your own, um, a lot of women don't have that sort of luxury of not telling um, other people because they need to especially if they end up in hospital and so on um, and if they have other children then it's it's kind of essential to ask for help um, but yeah it, the, the isolation really it can be really profound um, and that takes a toll on, on your mental health um, it's hard not to get depressed when you feel that unwell for any length of time even, even a few days you start to feel miserable but yeah weeks and months of it um, and you've heard you would Saying you've heard stories from from women where those that darkness has been in so intense that they've even thought of um, wanting yeah. to end their pregnancy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's it's really not uncommon. Um, probably the vast majority of women who phone our helpline are at the point of considering it, um, which is something often that they are absolutely racked with guilt about. We're not talking about unwanted pregnancies here. Um, we're talking about very much wanted pregnancies and um, the, because although we've said there's no um, cure for the condition and it's about management, that's not entirely true. There is a cure and it's termination. Um, so, uh, you know, they, it's it's understandable when you're that ill um, to look for um, a cure and um, ensuring that she understands that a, that's a completely reasonable, rational thought to be having when you're that unwell and that she's not alone in that and she certainly wouldn't be the first woman um, to consider it. Is It can be really reassuring for women. Um, but from the work we did with BPAS a few years ago um, where we surveyed women's experiences of um, termination, what was really clear um, was that the vast majority of women terminating for this were not even reaching secondary care um, and certainly were not um, being offered the full range of treatments available. Um, women lose their jobs for this condition a lot, although that's obviously illegal. It does happen um, all the time. A, a large percentage of our calls are about um, employment issues and uh, whether it's okay that they're about to get sacked for being off um, with pregnancy sickness. Um, so that's important. You know, often women feel like, oh, well, if I don't terminate, I'm going to lose my job and not be able to pay for my, my rent and so on. Um, and the trauma that women experience, um, we found it was very akin to termination for fetal abnormality. Um, you know, strong grieving process, often guilt that lasts um, years afterwards. Um, so that's that's important to bear in mind as well. Is there anything that either of you would want to add on on what it's like to be in that position or what you hear from from women 
No, I mean, Caitlin's summary on the nausea, I think, for me was the biggest thing. It is so overwhelming. It's it's unbelievable. And even if you're not vomiting, you can still have the diagnosis of hyperemesis, although it's hypersickness. Oh, okay. The nausea can be so overwhelming that you need to have the same level of treatment and you're not eating, you're not drinking, you're not functioning. Um, for me, I, I mean, you'd hope as a GP I'd be able to navigate the healthcare system better than most, but, he, but even then I struggled. Um and I also knew that I wasn't well and was able to identify that perhaps earlier than a, a lay person would. But you keep waking every day hoping it's going to go away, especially if it's your first pregnancy with uh, nausea and vomiting or hyperemesis. And as a consequence, you actually delay seeking help a little bit. That backed up with what Caitlin mentioned about sickness and pregnancy is a sort of soft good sign for most people um, it certainly isn't when it's 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 proper hyperemesis when you go and seek help I my experience was I didn't really feel properly heard um, and I think that's partly because um, primary care professionals are not actively taught on this subject they're not so aware of it it's deemed a sort of secondary care um, process of care with obstetricians and actually the perversity of it is because it happens and starts so early in a pregnancy it's, a, it's the general practitioners and the nurse practitioners it's the primary care team that are the first port of call for women um, and of all the people who should be best versed on it it's that team um, and so part of this is trying to, to teach more primary care professionals what it is how to help women and, and help manage it but it was a sense of just trying to survive yeah each day and um, even being a clinician myself my colleagues who are clinicians didn't really have a full understanding of what I was going through or struggled to empathize um, and then the last point is the, the enormous disappointment that your pregnancy is not supposed to be like this. You, pregnancy is supposed to be a time of wellness, a time of health, a time of positivity, uh, of fun. And actually everything that Caitlin's mentioned about loneliness and isolation, whether it's self-inflicted or as a, uh, as a need, um, is depressing. It, it, it does it does change your mental health and how you feel about things a grieving process for that loss of a normal pregnancy experience you know I always yeah. looked forward to being pregnant and to realize that I was never going to experience what other people experience mm. was there was a, a very strong grieving process mm. that went on with that so maybe we can come to you now Rebecca just to tell us more um, factually what is sickness in pregnancy and and high premises um, and what's normal and what's abnormal. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, well, I think that's, that's a very interesting question. I think we know that um, the majority of women in pregnancy do experience some degree of nausea and uh, many of them do uh, vomit on a, occasionally. So as many as 80 to 90% of women experience some of that, um, which I think is sometimes uh, the reason that doctors will tell their patients that it's all part of normal pregnancy because they may have experienced it themselves to some much um, lighter degree. And the demarcation between when uh, pregnancy sickness is um, still part of normal pregnancy and when it then um, comes into the area where uh, we might speak of hyperemesis gravidarum, that delineation is, um, there's no international consensus on that um, uh, 
place where that take place. We see see different studies using different uh, types of criteria. But I think we would all probably agree that the symptoms for someone with HG would be severe, both the nausea and all the vomiting. And um, they might have already led to uh, weight loss in the mother. They would have um, led to very poor intake and um, often to some degree of dehydration. And we know that women um, with hyperemesis, this is from Norwegian uh, uh, work, that they do have a very limited intake. They might only be taking in as little as uh, four to 800 calories a day, which is um, considering normal maternal requirements are around 2,000 calories a day. That's really quite um, under what they would normally need. Um, and I think that many clinicians would probably also be um, uh, looking for signs of uh, ketones in the urine. It's also something we touched on in the paper um, to help them delineate normal pregnancy sickness from hyperemesis. We've also discussed in the paper that um, while clinicians may use this, um, and it is in fact in the RCOG guidelines, the uh, evidence to support the use of ketones in the urine to diagnose hyperemesis is very limited. There's only a number of studies that have even looked at this. Um, and they don't find a clear association with the symptoms or duration of um, hospital stay. And I think that that makes perfect sense. I think hyperemesis is probably the only condition uh, with vomiting and nausea that may, uh, where, where we study ketones in the urine to determine whether someone may or may not be dehydrated and need IV fluids. We would not do that in any other condition like um, acute diarrhea or um, chemotherapy-induced um, nausea and vomiting. Uh, we'd be looking for different signs. And ketones are, of course, a, a, a measure of um, lipolysis and uh, lack of carbohydrate fuels for the body, which then starts um, breaking down the body's stores of fat. If we address this ketones issue, how, how do you think ketones became important in either the diagnosis or assessment of hyperemesis? Well, I'm not sure about this. I have, um, I have, I know that when I started my training, this was common practice and it had been in the generation of physicians that preceded me. Um, I, and I honestly don't know why this became such an important marker for, for, um, for this particular condition. I do know that doctors like to have um, something that they can measure and quantify to to they're used to having that type of tool at um, at their fingertips for most conditions um, but I don't know the history of why this was introduced into um, hyperemesis care mm. and so how does it get used in in treatment pathways either in in primary care or in emergency departments or in hospital what what can ketones do to you and on your treatment journey well if i could take that one first the i think what we do with ketones often is to measure them and um in an in an attempt to establish whether someone is uh sick with hyperemesis which can have an effect of of women being turned away from hospital care who don't have sufficient ketonuria to warrant this diagnosis and um i think once they're in hospital we use ketones to establish whether they've improved sufficiently 
to be discharged home, uh, which can sometimes lead to women being in hospital uh, for um, probably for longer than they may want to be and need to be um, uh, based on their, 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 their ketonuria and a barrier to getting out. And how does that feel, Caitlin, from, do you hear from women? What's their experience of, of how yeah. that's for them? The ketone thing is probably the, the biggest issue for our women um, in terms of accessing treatment. Um, you know, it, they can be so dehydrated. And, and my, my background's nursing, obviously, I was a practice nurse. And, you know, you, you would assess any other condition um for, who, for a patient who might have dehydration, you would just assess them on the signs and symptoms of dehydration. I mean, it's first year nursing, basic kind of stuff. Um, and yet with this condition, uh, clinicians can be faced with a severely dehydrated woman. Um, and if she doesn't have ketones in her urine, she'll she'll be turned away. Um, and it, it, from occasionally at GP level, it will be a, um, the deciding factor on whether or not they'll prescribe anything. Um, or admit her to hospital, and certainly within early pregnancy units um, and A and E departments, um, it's the it, it's frequently the criteria for whether or not she gets um, IV fluids. And and like Rebecca said, there's there's literally no other medical condition where you would decide whether or not to to rehydrate with IV fluids based on ketones in the urine. Um, and we've had women who. Um, yeah, are really, really dehydrated, have, haven't been able to p- provide a urine sample for hours and hours sat in A&E, um, and they'll wait until she can pass that sample to check whether or not to give her fluids, <laughs> whereas any other patient would probably have had one or two bags by then um, because clearly they were dehydrated when they got there. Um, so that, that's a real problem. And, and like Rebecca says, the, le- the leaving hospital thing as well um, is, is a problem. Um, and I think women often don't realise that they, they are able to just leave. It's not actually prison. <laughs> I do tell women that quite frequently. You know, you can just leave if you feel well. Um, so, um, yeah, that, that can be a problem as well, that they're, they're saying I can't go home until I've got no ketones in my urine and so on. Um, but she may be well rehydrated. Yeah. And, and So in the in in your, your article, you described that there's perhaps a, a mismatch between what best evidence is saying at the moment although that evidence isn't of a brilliant quality and and what the guidelines are, are doing are there any um steps to sort of rectify that gap because i think the study that you particularly emphasize was published in was it 2012 something like that um are, are there any moves within either the emergency care or the obstetric community to think that it's it's an issue to revisit or well, our co-author that's not on, on this um, podcast is uh, Manjit Shamar, who is the lead author on the RCOG guidelines. Um, and she's, she certainly recognises that this needs revisiting um, and has, has indicated that certainly in the next guidelines, it's unlikely to be in there about ketones. Um, and so when, when can we expect those? Well, yeah, uh, <laughs> not yet, but hopefully soon. I mean, they've, they've been out a couple of years now, okay. so they'll need reviewing, I guess, in the next year or so. Um, and certainly as a charity, we are very much getting out our message of of ditch the ketones and trying to encourage early pregnancy units to take them out of their guidelines and stop testing them there's there's just no need to be testing them it's it's a kind of pointless um waste of time if we leave leave ketones aside and we imagine instead that that we're going to be in a ketone free or minimal ketone world and you're sitting with a woman in front of you maybe in primary care maybe up in the emergency department how can you 
begin this more rounded assessment of of how they are what can you ask them and and what can you sort of do to to work out how dehydrated they are um well, it's rounded, you're right. You've got to assess the whole woman. It's holistic management. It's not just the physical person. It's also the mental health of the patient. So physically, you're assessing dehydration by basic measures, uh, skin uh, assessment, looking at blood pressure, looking at whether they're tachycardic, Is looking at urine output. Pregnancy, just the, even the blood pressure and the heart rate, because you can... Those measures can change in pregnancy as well. Are they, are they sort of reliable in... Well, the tachycardia, the pulse is probably what I would go on more yeah. than anything else, and also history. Yeah. You get most of your evidence on everything, yeah. and you get your diagnosis almost on history alone. Mm-hmm. And so the examination is simply mm-hmm. to back up what you've discovered. I think Certainly that's how balance. I was taught medicine. Fluid balance is a really useful one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and asking how much she's managed to drink, and if, and if it's an, an ongoing case and it's mm. not the first time you can suggest that she actually monitors her fluid intake and output at home. I mean, it's really mm. simple. And actually, partners often really like to be able to proactively be involved, be involved yeah. in that so they can, you know, provide their partner with, you know, a, a bottle that's 250 or 500 mils mm. and monitor how much she's managing to, to drink and keep down. Mm. And also, if necessary, monitor her fluid output. Um, you know, are there any sort of ballpark figures on, on those kinds of volumes? I mean, is there... Um, speaking as an obstetrician, I suppose you probably see the worst cases up in hospital. Mm. Is, are there kind of ballpark volumes that you need to be getting down or or peeing out, or is it, it just too difficult to? Well, I, fi- I find keeping a fluid balance on someone who's vomiting quite uh, difficult. I must agree with Gillian that and and Caitlin that I think history is very important in this. If women say, "I have not been able," I'm very thirsty. I can't keep anything down. I'd love to, but I, uh, my, my mouth is dry, my eyes are dry, if I cry there are no tears, and I haven't been um, passing urine more than once or twice a day. It's very concentrated in dark. For me, that would be sufficient uh, to um, start them on a trial of a rehydration and um, see if that improves those symptoms. The other thing you mentioned in your paper is this um, questionnaire um, assessment tell us a bit how useful score. is that yeah what's, what's that <laughs> well it's got um, a dreadful name yeah, puke score. <laughs> i think they're very pleased with 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 yeah, that i can imagine with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um um i mean it's designed for research and okay. and and it's it's very much um for sort of nausea and vomiting of pregnancy mm-hmm. and the spectrum so while the uh, a high score could indicate that she has hyperemesis um within Within the spectrum of high premises itself, um, it's not necessarily particularly sensitive. Um, so while it's better than ketones, <laughs> um, it, uh, particularly for that um, that point of of high premises versus sort of more moderate symptoms, mm. um, it again it's not necessarily something that should be relied on. And one thing it really doesn't show is the the degree of nausea. Mm. Um, the severity of nausea so you could have someone who isn't actually vomiting very much um, and therefore she's not going to have a particularly high puke score but the nausea is so intense that she can't that she's not managing to eat or drink and is dehydrated and, and malnourished what, so just what, I, what I would use it for particularly in primary care is not so much a diagnostic tool but as a um, it's it, it's quantifying quality so when I see a patient and bring them back the next week because I don't 
allow it to go longer. I bring them back quite quickly for reviews to see if what measures we've taken to try and alleviate symptoms are working. You can use it as a sort of uh, quantitative analysis of whether their quality mm. of life has improved or not. And then that for perhaps treatment um, if you're trying different mm. medications, etc., that's what I would probably so the, focus on. For the benefit of the people listening, this this question asks you three questions. It asks you, on an average day, for how long do you feel nauseated or sick to your stomach? And it gives you some categories. And then it asks you, on an average day, how many times do you vomit or throw up? And it also asks, on an average day, how many times have you had retching? Or dry heaves without bringing anything up. So that's that's mm. the question. But the maximum about. amount is like six or seven, isn't it? Yes, six or seven hours, six or seven vomits. And and for women with high premises, <laughs> you know, it could be all the time. Or or the difference in treatment could bring, you know, you could she could be vomiting thirty times a day and have nausea twenty every waking moment. Um, and the treatment brings that down to say. Mm. Um, 10 vomits a day and a couple of nausea-free hours per day, that's not going to be reflected on the puke score, but could make all the difference to her keeping the pregnancy or not. Um, so, uh, But also it's a useful tool for just for that conversation to be able to quantify. So if you're you know, using the puke score and your patient's saying, well, six, ugh, that doesn't even come close to how many times I'm vomiting, then that gives you something more to document. You don't have to necessarily document exactly what the puke score is. It, you know, it just gives you a baseline conversation starter. So say we've got some gauge now of how of how a woman in front of us is doing. If you're then going to move the conversation forward and think, well, what can we do from here? We could do nothing. We could try some conservative measures. We could try some drugs. How how could you go through talking through the pros and cons of those different options that are in front of them? I think uh, clinically, once you've excluded that we're not dealing with more of an acute situation where it actually merits hospital admission, then I think you simply need to take a little bit more time in your consultation to go through it. And doing nothing is an option because part of this is being heard, part of this is being presented with what options are available for women and then it's allowing them to have time to review it, perhaps talk with their partner or their families um, and then come back. Uh, and then it is, it is a case of going through what their health beliefs are as well are they very strongly opposed to medication? And then, you know, a part of this is education, sometimes re-education. Um, and you take it from there, really, and it's a dialogue, I would argue. There's not many women who want to take medication in pregnancy. Mm. Most women yeah. want to be, you know, all natural and stay away from, you know, alcohol Anything. and yeah. medications and cigarettes. You know, the vast majority of women... Like so what that. does that, if, if you wanted to start there, if you wanted to start with not taking medication, what um, evidence might there be for, for some of the conservative, more conservative treatments? Uh, so if she's managing to um, eat at all, um, then very, very small amounts. And, and it's careful not to imply that you think that she's eating large meals. <laughs> um, but, you know, rather than not eating anything, if she can try and nibble little things really regularly like spreading a piece of toast out over an hour by cutting it in quarters um, and um, resting and um, uh, yeah I reducing other stressors so it's resting yeah. as you say maybe um, actually needing to have footnotes off work um, taking out extra things in their life that add to uh, add to what they're having to deal with because it's a physical condition that's quite debilitating and if you've got lots of other concerns uh, work-wise, uh, 
childcare wise if you can try and uh, declutter some of that if you're able obviously not everybody is but if you can then that can sort of help and allow the individual to rest more um, frequent fluids small and often for both uh, foods and, and fluids and very simple plain things um, I even uh, experienced that actually chewing gum all the time helped me and I don't know whether there was some mm. message going to my brain and via my stomach that there was a sense that I was eating mm. but bizarrely when I ate I felt well then when I stopped eating I felt horrendous mm. um, and would vomit but and it, it's good to, to appreciate that it's not necessarily just the nausea and vomiting as well Mo- a lot of women with high premises will have this um, heightened sense of smell which we all know is like again a normal part of pregnancy but with this it's heightened to the most unbelievable degree and uh, it's not just that things smell strongly it's that they're warped so they smell absolutely horrific and um, and that can be pretty much any food tap water is a really common one that women say smells really bad Um, but it can also be your other children and your partner and again that can really add to the to the isolation and the other sim- symptom that's really common is um, excessive saliva. And um, and women can find that really distressing as well. Um, so kind of helping them to sort of mm. appreciate mm. that those symptoms are all part of it. Um, just jumping back to, mm. the, to the not medicating, I think that if a woman is... Um, if she's if she is managing to eat and, and drink little and often, then then great, and it may be that she can manage without medication. But if she is more severe than that, and she's losing a lot of weight and she's struggling to maintain her hydration, I think that for her to make an informed decision to not take medication does involve discussion around the risks associated with malnutrition yeah. and dehydrated. Rebecca, can you tell us a bit about those? So what what um, if you've got someone that that is more at the severe end what are the what are the harms of doing nothing versus the the efficacy or the or the benefits of medication um i think if you were to have someone that was severely dehydrated and vomiting a lot i suppose the most uh, common uh, factor in that would be that they have electrolyte disturbances uh low potassium would probably be the most common one i see but also low uh, sodium and uh, the in, in in extreme cases that can lead to um, arrhythmia, and um, we have seen cases of women that need to go into um, the cardiac unit with a very low potassium based on the vomiting. So I suppose they're they're short term outcomes. We know that there are women in the past that um, without treatment for hyperemesis. Uh, there was maternal mortality, and that's even been described recently uh, in this decade in um, in the Western world. But these are very rare occurrences when women have been um, not uh, appropriately treated. Um, so I think they're short-term, maybe the, f- the most uh, important ones to mention. Then there's, based on the malnutrition, uh, we sometimes see... Um, and particularly in the literature, there are reports of women that develop acute uh, Wernicke. So that's a B1 thiamine deficiency problem uh, that is sometimes uh, mixed up with um, psychiatric diagnoses because women present with, or they can present with uh, confusion. And um, in fact, they, they can have B1 deficiency, which is why the guideline states that we should um, be supplementing thiamine um, when we start uh, rehydration, 
and and possibly before that. Um, so I think they're the the ones short term that uh, we should be aware of. And in the longer term, we know that um, uh, for the pregnancy, women that have very poor weight gain or even weight loss in pregnancy are at an increased risk of pregnancy complications like fetal growth restriction, uh, preterm delivery. And we have actually got evidence that women with hyperemesis, particularly if it's paired with uh, poor maternal weight gain or prolonged sickness into the second trimester, um, is, is in fact um, associated with an, a slightly increased risk of those pregnancy complications. So they're good to be mindful of if you're considering um, medication for the um, for the if you're considering harms and benefits of medication for hyperemesis. And what what uh, benefits could you expect to see from starting a medication? Uh, are you talking about sort of total reversal of all your symptoms, or are you talking about lessening of things? What when I counsel women that start on medication, I, I would basically never tell them that I'm expecting their symptoms to to completely go away with the medication because I just don't think that's an achievable goal for most women, um, and I think it um, it would probably not uh, do any good to our patient doctor relationship if I were to tell them that. The, um, I think with with our first line treatment of antihistamines, some women find uh, that the side effect, which is that you become a little bit sleepy, um, can actually help them get a bit more sleep. In which period, some women actually find that they're well while they're asleep, they're not um, feeling nauseous. Um, so that I think lessening of symptoms is probably uh, the aim, and trying to achieve goals like Caitlin said, having a little bit. Uh, less of uh, vomiting and maybe being able to have a few hours without tremendous nausea. Um, if you scale up and you go to the second and third line treatment, uh, you're um, with, for instance, metoclopramide or ondansetron. Um, I think with ondansetron particularly, I think the aim of um, reducing nausea with ondansetrons um I think most women find that it, it can benefit them in terms of the number of vomits they have, but doesn't maybe particularly address the nausea as much. So I, I usually discuss that with them. And of course, we discuss side effects that are, that are common, uh, particularly with ondansetron, but can also occur with metoclopramide. And what are they? Well, I think with ondansetron, it's very, very important to um, discuss the um, uh, side effect of uh, constipation because that can add to nausea. These women are not um, on a on a normal fibre rich diet as uh, and they haven't been for weeks. Often when they start on that that medication, um, adding the uh, constipation um, without warning is probably uh, is not a good idea. I, I do discuss with them um, what types of laxatives they could um, be using to. Um, to combat constipation, it's very difficult if you're very nauseous to um, to uh, keep down a, a big um, glass of water with extra fibre mixed in from a sachet. Um, so th that's in itself sometimes a, a tricky one to um, to combat or to um, prevent. But I think knowing that there are options for constipation, and I usually give women a script to um, so that they can have their partners pick up uh, this medication um, as soon as this side effect occurs. 
Are there any particular harms known of these, um, the commonly used medications for high premises? I don't know, Rebecca, if you want to answer that one. Or- yeah, uh, it's also something I do discuss with women. I think for, for the antihistamines that we've had for a, a long time, I think we have sufficient um, information from, from large studies that we're, we're not concerned about them uh, causing um, uh, congenital defects in the babies. Um, I think the same applies for metoclopramide um, and for um, uh, proton pump inhibitors that are also commonly used for women with hyperemesis. Uh, I think there's more of a question with uh, the th- third-line treatment um, on Dancitron. There's a number of studies that have seen a slight increased uh, risk of having a baby with a, an atrial or ventricular septum defect and of uh, cleft palate. The same applies to um, corticosteroid therapy. We think that that's also um, uh, associated with an increased risk of congenital anomalies. Uh, mainly cleft palate again. Uh, so this is something I do discuss with women, and we tr- we usually try to delay the um, starting that type of treatment until they've passed the twelve or thirteen week mark when we're not so concerned for congenital anomalies anymore. But um, there are women that need these this treatment earlier on, and I think we do use these treatments for other conditions um, that require them. Uh, after a discussion has taken place between the patient who's aware of the risks and aware of the indication. And I think it's up to her to uh, to discuss, uh, to d- decide what type of weight that small risk increase has for her, given her the severity of her symptoms at the time. And discussing that risk, it's, I think that women need um, help to understand the difference between relative risk and absolute risk and so on, because, you know... It, if you're saying there's an increased risk of cleft palate or um, congenital heart defects, it, that, it, that really needs quantifying and making them understand that we're talking, we're still talking extremely small, small numbers, and that we don't fully um, know yet what the um, consequences of malnutrition and dehydration in the first trimester are for the for the offspring. Um, and so, you know, like you wouldn't be you wouldn't be considering these if they weren't. Um, perhaps necessary and that you know not treating is is not necessarily a a, a risk-free option either um and certainly steroids i mean like you say they have been used for other conditions um until fairly recently they were used um for the majority of ivf cases and so on and, and i don't believe that was stopped because of um uh concerns about uh, increased risk it was stopped because they weren't very effective um but you know they, in, when you look at the literature for, for steroids in relation to other conditions there's there's very little um kind of concern about using them uh when you're weighing up those risks and benefits and if the if the major risk is her terminating an otherwise wanted pregnancy then you know it's fairly major risk to the fetus there is there anything that you'd added Gillian? um no, I mean, well, yes and no. A lot's been said that I agree with. Um, I think you sort of have to metaphorically hold the patient in primary care. And I think just doing that with a bit more attention um, would be welcomed. So bringing them back for regular reviews, penciling the next appointment and not simply handing the first line treatment and saying, 
or measures to conservative measures. Off you go, let me know how you go. Bring them back. Uh, invite the partner with them to come and have discussion. So a bit more of the consultation, a bit more of the uh, the discussion is actually taken away. Two heads are always better than one. And if you're already suffering with a debilitating condition, there's only so much you can actually absorb. Um, and uh, yeah, the big message that Caitlin me- mentioned, which is always the one for me is, let's start with this. Let's see how you go. There are lots of other things that we can add in polypharmacy effectively or just try the next thing stop this see if this one works better this is not the only option and the other thing um, I would welcome seeing is a little bit more early referral for consultant led um, opinion on how we're managing this because I have to say as a GP I wouldn't be comfortable initiating prednisolone but I absolutely recognise that it often needs to be started and early um, but I need to have a specialist to to, to help me do that and so manage the prescribing. Touch on, at what point do you refer? Um, so I, I refer when either the condition is so severe that it's obvious that actually I'm best placed making the referral now, which will always have a natural delay uh, for the individual being seen in secondary care. And if suddenly we have a, a resolution, then all well and good and we can cancel that appointment in good time. Or after a couple reviews of tweak, of tweaking and initiating medicine, maybe two, three antiemetics on board, then I say, look, this is not being managed. This needs to move forward. And that so that for me with a patient uh, would be within three weeks that I would move to want to, to escalate it into secondary care. I, the delay is the problem, I think. A lot of women in this situation are, are feeling very vulnerable and, and maybe it's difficult for them to take in information or to think clearly about what's going on how can you adapt your consulting to help someone who's feeling that way so I think you need to recognize that um, the women that are coming to you are debilitated with this this illness and uh, in some cases the dehydration actually can affect them cognitively it has a negative impact on on um, cognition and so Bearing all of that in mind, um, you need to perhaps allow for more time within the consultation, which isn't always available, but we need to try and make it available. Um, We need to perhaps bring them back. I tend to bring women back very regularly um, because I... because the nausea and vomiting is so dreadful you really don't want somebody suffering with that for long spells of time to see if something is effective or not and you know relatively quickly whether it is or not so maybe five days later a week later bring them back for a review encourage them if they're on their own to bring someone else be it a partner be it a a family member a friend anybody who's able to take on a little bit more of the information that's being delivered in what is usually quite a quick consultation but there's a lot to transmit um, so that they can go over it and uh, with the patient later when they're not quite so flustered within a clinical consultation um, and be very clear that it's not a it's not one size fits all and be that there are lots of options for treatment um, that not to think that this if, if, for example, you give one antiemetic, not to think that this is all we can give, that there is a second one we can give, there's a third one, there's secondary tertiary measures um, under specialist care that can be brought in, that you can have polypharmacy, not just one, it's not one or the other, several bringing in PPIs as well can all have a, you know, can all tweak the, the illness and have a positive effect. Um, just metaphorically hold the patient. Mm. 
and look after them. And bear in mind that often you, you don't need to insist that she comes down to the surgery. Phone calls can, can do. Um, in my third pregnancy, I, I had a great relationship with my GP and really excellent care. And um, we'd come up with a plan in advance. She made sure the other GPs knew uh, for days that she wasn't working what that plan was. And we were able to communicate by email because for me at the time, even speaking on the phone was hard, let alone getting to the surgery. Um, but, you know, we, she, we could email and I could say, you know, I'm, I'm doing fine, but I'm going to need a repeat prescription or actually I, I'm spiralling down and I think I maybe need to go on to the next level and then we could maybe speak on the phone. Um, but, you know, often the, you don't need to drag the, the poor woman That's down true. to the surgery for the it. Th- the other thing to highlight is that if you've had HG, the chances of you getting it in subsequent pregnancies is raised. So um, uh, uh, advance warning on that awareness that this is likely to happen again they'll be lucky if it doesn't but it, it chances are it probably will getting in prophylactic treatment earlier there's often a pattern if you started to have the symptoms badly at week six you're likely to have it again at week six so it's having these markers in the sand so whilst you 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 leave the hg behind when you have the baby and you leave it happily behind you will sometimes forget what happened and so it's really useful to have had a clinician being involved and assessing how their HG pattern was and what worked for them before, because often that same drug will work again. Mm. And holistically, I, um, from my um, experience of consulting with women, particularly on um, prevention within subsequent pregnancies or um, planning for subsequent pregnancies, is really encouraging them to plan their lives holistically if they're if they're going to attempt another um, pregnancy Um, so you know making sure that they can cope financially and practically with their other children and so on Um, and that although I mean you know there's not a huge amount of evidence that that's gonna that that necessarily helps it 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 clearly does um, just from a a sort of logical point of view um, and making sure that they you have that plan in advance so that although they're going to have to battle the condition hopefully they're not going to have to sort of battle to get to get treatment Um, and just picking up on something Gillian said about um, leaving HG behind you um, after the pregnancy. Um, lots of women do. Um, a lot of women don't. And, uh, and post-traumatic stress disorder is not uncommon with this condition. Um, and women can, the isolation can carry on. Uh, we know that um, social isolation is one of the biggest uh, risk factors for um, postnatal depression and for suicide. Um, and um, our women are becoming socially isolated not at the point of leaving work for maternity leave, but right from the start of the pregnancy. Um, They often don't fit into the mother and baby groups um, in the same way that their peers might um, because their experience has been so wildly different uh, to the other women. And... um, and that can be a that really can be a big problem for our women and getting help for that um, can be equally tricky because um, it's sort of like what you're traumatized from sickness in your pregnancy but you have your baby now and <laughs> all that kind of thing so um, recognizing that, that that mental health impact can last well beyond the pregnancy um, is is important. Rebecca is there anything that you would like to add to? What I'd like to add is the um, the distress that women experience that um, have to wait in A&E when they're when they're so ill I, I do try and um, make my the, the hospital I work in I try to have an established protocol for um, for how women can receive their IV fluids ahead of um, uh, ahead of uh, other women 
that or assessing them as soon as we can, giving them if they've established that they have hyperemesis gravidarum and they they call up or their partner calls up and says, well, she's not holding anything down. She hasn't passed urine for most of the day um, to just make sure that there is no unnecessary uh, waiting involved um, in, in the process because I think that's very common to hospitals that these, these women don't necessarily have to have a re-diagnosis with HG. They, we know that they have it and we know that they will most likely need to come in again and again uh, because we know that 40% of women need readmission or re-treatment with uh, rehydration. Um, so uh, we should probably manage our hospital care accordingly instead of trying to re-diagnose every time someone comes in as if it's a new manifestation of something completely unexpected. You've been listening to Caitlin Dean, Gillian Ostrowski and Rebecca Painter discuss the management of severe pregnancy sickness and hyperemesis gravidarum. That article is now available on bmj.com. That's it for this episode, but we'll be back discussing this and other things in our evidence roundup. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on it. I'm Helen McDonald. Thanks for listening.